Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. A quick announcement that my short story collection, Home is a Made Up Place, is coming out on February 28th, 2023, but is in pre-order now. If you'd like to learn more about Home is a Made Up Place, you can visit my website, roneetplank.com, to read a blurb and some advanced praise and find links there in case you would like to pre-order it. It's available at all of the major bookstores as well as your own independent bookstores and online as well. Today, my guest is Felicia Ty Heath. She's a triple board certified critical care anesthesiologist, blogger, and debut author. She spent a month alone in a studio in the heart of Philadelphia to write the original manuscript of Spirit of a Hummingbird, Memories from a Childhood on the Run, just 72 hours after delivering her third child. This left her husband with their two-year-old, one-year-old, and newborn as she drank Pinot Noir and wrote for days on end. All of it was his idea, which is exactly why she tattooed his name across her shoulder and eloped with him on a South African safari six years ago. Felicia now lives in Pennsylvania with her husband and four children. She practices medicine as she anticipates a shift in the universe with the release of her memoir. Welcome, Felicia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy you're here. And, you know, I I plan to start the interview with you sharing a little bit of Spirit of the Hummingbird, but I have to ask you a little bit about your your writing story, the the 72-hour period. Can you give me a little background about how that came to be and and why your husband was adamant that you get yourself writing right after you'd had your child? Sure. So I started writing bits and pieces, and I finally decided to allow my husband to read some of it. And he actually really believed in my craft. And he really wanted me to finish the book. So when I got pregnant with our third child, Naomi, we both took family leave and he happened to have one month off. And that's really rare between both of our schedules to have that much Mm -hmm. time off. Mm -hmm. And he suggested that I take this time to sit down and write the book from beginning to end. So that's what we did. Yes. How was that period of time for you when you were in that concentrated month? It was, it felt a little uncomfortable at first because I wasn't used to having all that uninterrupted time mm-hmm. and with no, with nothing else on my agenda besides writing. But then once I got into it and felt the momentum and their creativity, it felt amazing. It should be, you know, every every way that we write, that's yes. how it should be. <laughs> yes. And it's also sort of like a very, like it's a, like a very big pressure cooker in some ways because I feel like if it were me, at least I'd be breathing and, and sleeping and living mm-hmm. the story for that month. Oh, yes. It was really intense. And there was also this pressure of I'm sacrificing precious time with my newborn and my family and my husband. Mm -hmm. The book has to be finished by the time I check out of here. Oh, yeah, exactly. And then I am curious, too, about when you were writing, were you able to sort of separate the critical voice inside a lot of us writers when we're creating? Were you able to lean into the creative process without criticizing your writing or your voice at all? I I was. I I gave my space to be able to do that. 
I gave Ugh. myself the space. That sounds so decadent. I feel yeah. like also, you know, very hard to achieve, but also wonderful when you can. And I wonder if the pressure of knowing you had this one month to do so helped you just suspend any of the editing parts of the journey. Right. I, th- I think it certainly did. And I try to spend, I spent every waking moment writing. I hardly even took a break to eat. I bought like a bunch of frozen dinners <laughs> and I really just microwaved them for three minutes, ate and got back to it knowing that it had to be finished. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, so let's go back here and can you share a little bit about your memoir? Yes, of course. So Spirit of a Hummingbird is a story of generational trauma, perseverance, resilience, and forgiveness. I grew up as the daughter of a teenage immigrant mother from Vietnam and a father who was a prominent gangster in Boston. I essentially weave both of their incredible stories into my memoir as we live life on the run from law enforcement after my father escapes prison in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just a, the perfect and apt description of your book. So. You know, there's so much that I want to ask you on a craft level and also just about the story itself. Do you know when you had a sense that you would share the story in writing? Yeah, I think that initially on paper, I I wrote some of it when I was actually interviewing for residency spots for anesthesiology. So my personal statement was one that spoke about my desire to go into anesthesia because I felt like it was because the role of an anesthesiologist is to bring stability to the operating room and stability to their patient. And I gravitated towards this because I was seeking stability throughout my entire life, it seems. Mm. So when I wrote that in my personal statement, I had one interviewer that was really impressed by the story and had a really positive reaction to it. And that's kind of when I started to feel this shift between feeling insecure to feeling empowered. Mm. And maybe that there was something special about who I was and how I got here. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's so important that moment or those those series of events that lead us from hiding and I'm speaking collectively and also personally and so if this doesn't completely fit you you know please let me know this idea that we we are ashamed or we want to hide or not go back to a period of time that shaped us and was very painful Mm -hmm. to that transition where we lean in as memoirists and we just decide we're going to unpack the whole bag and we're just going to talk about it exactly I wonder once you started doing that, if you started feeling like it was the right decision. Um, I think it took a little while to actually feel very confident in the decision to tell my full story because there's so many layers to it and I had not come to grasp with a lot of my emotions. But then eventually as I reflected on them and healed from them and essentially wrote them down and went through this therapeutic process of telling the story was one night I I really felt a positive outcome from it. 
Mm-hmm. And the the story has so much in it. There's included in there are some news reports of your father and some of the court documents. There's some excerpts about that. You talk about how young your mom was when she came from Vietnam, from the refugee camp, the Malaysian refugee camp. You spend time sort of painting a picture of who they each were. You talk mm-hmm. about your childhood, you know, you being the oldest, which always comes with such a set of responsibilities and then also this idea of being in medical school and trying to achieve this independence and future for yourself so can you talk about how you decided to begin this story where you did and what felt especially important to depict in your narrative yes so I wanted to start the story from the middle I introduced my mother, myself, as a toddler, and my father in a gripping scene where my mother and I try to escape my father. I really wanted my reader to feel strongly invested in the characters from the very beginning and maybe even opinionated about a controversial decision my mother makes in chapter one. It also sets the tone for the rest of the book depicting, you know, seemingly insurmountable odds against me and my mother. Mm-hmm. And you do get a sense in the book of the fragility and how alone it seems that she is and you are in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, that idea of how much you're taking in even as a young child. Was it hard or, or what was the experience like to talk about who your father was and your mom and did you did you ever feel pressure to balance what the reader took away about them individually I would say I felt that more so about my mother I think that I tried very hard to paint a positive picture of my mother but their circumstances she was in and how young she was and being an immigrant in a foreign country and trying to navigate her own trauma and take care of me led her probably to the reader to make some decisions that perhaps the reader didn't think was right. I did want to hopefully create her in a way that, you know, she was doing her best. And at the end of the day, it was her strength and resilience that got us out of you know that situation and allowed me to thrive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you write about the uncles and the uncles I have here in air quotes mm-hmm. in your childhood and in some instances they were warm to you and or you know gave you candy or gave your mother a little bit of money to tide her over when she had nothing from your father and I felt like this was a really good example of how we grow up with these stories of or these understandings about what our life is like and who people are to us. And then Mm -hmm. you get older and you realize, wait a minute, what was really going on? You know, what is the Uh true story from my adult view? And so I wonder what it was like for you, what it's been like to discover later that those were actually not family or even close friends, but lackeys working for your father, those uncles. And how did that and all that you discovered about what your father was up to interrupt or disturb your confidence in what you understood growing up and your sort of ability to trust your instincts about what you know? Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting because when I was writing that part of the book and thinking about these men, 
you know, counterintuitively, I actually felt like a huge sense of empathy and even some sadness. And when I reflect on their behavior and our interactions and how they were involved with my dad, it didn't make their gestures any less real. Um, Instead, I felt like perhaps these men were criminals more so by circumstance. And perhaps in a different environment, they would have been law-abiding citizens. And when I was thinking it, thinking about it and, and them and our interactions and that, that part of the story, you know, I, I couldn't help but just try to remember, like, these, these were Vietnamese immigrants leaving a country poisoned by the war to start life in a country where the system was not really set up in a way for them to survive or provide for themselves and in some cases their families. And and sometimes the road of least resistance in order to sustain themselves happened to be a life of crime. And and they were criminals, but I, I don't believe all of them were evil. And in fact, I believe most of them were just human, if that makes any sense. So like my intuition always told me that something was not right and that perhaps they were not my real uncles. But as a child, you you can't always put the big picture together because there's so much that you don't understand yet and you don't even know where to look for the truth or the answers. So it, it wasn't until I got a little older and exposed to a little bit more that I started to pursue my curiosity. And if anything, it has actually like strengthened my ability to trust my instincts because I always knew something was off. Right. I mean, you're super smart. Right. And you had to be plucky because you're trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think you missed a lot. It's just what's so fascinating to me. And one part of memoir that I just love so much is the idea that we can almost give strength to the voiceless part of ourselves when right. we were younger and we didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So craft-wise, and, and this comes up for memoirs sometimes, and I know people asked me when my book came out, your memories, you know, you, you are the oldest child in your family, and so you definitely have far more memories of sporadically living with your father. But memory is fluid, and, you know, memoirs mm-hmm. often face these challenges with crafting their timelines and dialogue and scenes. And so what was your process? Uh, because you have a lot of really well-drawn scenes in your book, which mm-hmm. I appreciated, you know, I I felt like you really set the reader in a space and time and you gave your parents words, which really helps to explain who they are. So right. what was your process of building those those flashbacks and those scenes? My process started with writing the most emotional and difficult scenes first. So I initially wrote each passage as its own little story before bringing it all together. And I kind of assumed that my most gut-wrenching experiences would also provoke like really intense feelings for my readers. So I wrote those separately and then I went back and tried to break them up with other stories, knowing that I really wanted to tell my mother's story just as much as my own. This is where I attempted to poetically insert the interludes to give my audience some some reprieve from the main narrative. And then crafting the timeline was was really difficult. And I, I did this multiple times <laughs> before yeah. the final product because I was going back and forth, you know, bef- between the present, the past, and even the past before my existence, which can be really tricky for 
when you're writing a, a memoir and, and keep the reader in tune with what's going on and not confuse them. So I, I, I had to visualize the story. I drew it out the timeline on like poster paper and moved the stories around to make the events still flow and make sense. And even though they may have been entirely different stories and, and timelines, I try to group them with like some sort of underlying theme so that there was some connection throughout. And then as far as dialogue, if I was recreating a scene as I wrote it and I heard voices and my thoughts and memories, I wrote it as dialogue. If the voices were, you know, the loudest thing in my memory. I feel like dialogue is one of those things that it tells the story for you. If you can write it in a really authentically, in some ways, I wanted it to feel like, you know, my reader was watching a movie. And in a movie, you hear the characters speaking and you draw your own conclusions about that interaction, that conversation, and how the characters may be feeling. So I wrote dialogue specifically in areas where I wanted to give my reader the freedom of personal interpretation. I really appreciated that too. I feel like they, it did a lot of the heavy lifting for your narrative mm-hmm. and so important. You know, I want to talk about, and, and a little bit of a trigger warning for anyone listening, you know, th- there's a trigger warning here for abuse, for some violence. You spend time developing what you experienced with your cousins at Aunt Lana's house um, mm-hmm. as you face increasingly dangerous situations there. And I felt the tension growing as you seem to be in more and more jeopardy. So before we talk about how you went about explaining and showing what happened when you were there, can you introduce and then read that passage we talked about? Yes, of course. If I told an adult and my cousins got in trouble, they would know I snitched. If they found out, I was convinced they would try to kill me. The thought of bringing it up to mom didn't cross my mind. I figured she wouldn't be able to do anything about somebody else's children. So why stress her out and add to the burdens she carried? Therefore, I decided to handle my own distress and try to tell Aunt Lana about her kids' abusive behavior toward me. I had carefully considered my options for help, and she was a reasonable and perhaps sole option for me. Aunt Lana was scheduled to work a late shift, so she was there most of the day. I trailed behind her like a stray pup while she cooked and cleaned. Don't you want to go play with your cousins? Aunt Lana asked, noting me standing by the counter as she rinsed the dishes. Um, not really. I can help you if you want, I said, leaning toward the sink. It's okay, honey, but this is boring. Why don't you go find them? You guys can play video games or hang out, whatever you want. I don't want to. I looked down at the open dishwasher. So you want to stand there while I load the dishes? Yeah. Sometimes I don't like playing with them, I said, keeping my eyes low. Why not? Mm, Because... She turned off the faucet, closed the dishwasher, and looked at me as she dried her hands, waiting for me to continue. Because, uh, because they hit me sometimes, Auntie. My kids what? I hesitated and then decided to take the risk. Not Vivian and Tony, but Kenneth does. 
I'm scared to play with them. They hit you? Uh Uh-huh. My kids hit you, she said, as if to confirm what I was saying. Just Kenneth, really. Mm Mm-hmm. So is it all of them or just Kenneth that hits you? Usually Kenneth, unless he makes them do it too. Are you sure? Yeah, I don't want to play with them, Auntie. We stood face to face now. They would never do that to you, Ting Ting, she said. My kids would never hurt you. My face fell and I looked down at the floor. It's not nice to lie about your cousins. If you don't want to play with them, fine. But making up stories so you don't have to, she said, I'm disappointed in you. I'm not lying, I mumbled. It's not nice, she repeated. They watch you and babysit you when there's no one around to take care of you, not even your own mother. You wouldn't want me to tell your mom and dad that you're lying, would you? No. All right, good. Now go find them. I'm going to lie down before my shift tonight. With that, Aunt Lana hung up the dish towel and left the kitchen. Thank you for reading that. So, Obound, what age were you at that point? I was about seven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the detail with which you, you show those scenes and the other scenes leading up to the more difficult um, assault really kind of signaled for me as a reader that, you know, there's mounting tension and there is danger ahead. And, you know, I, at first I wondered, you know, what what's happening here? But for me, it signaled, okay, we're we're getting closer and closer to danger. So Mm -hmm. what did you want the reader to understand about your circumstances in developing these scenes and spending time on them? I, I, I did want them to understand exactly kind of what went through your mind so that I, I could feel the threat to my safety escalating with each day I spent there at my cousin's house. And my choices to protect myself were getting limited. And I think that you can kind of get a sense that the decision I made to try to tell my aunt was it was pretty calculated. You know, at that point, I, I, the possible benefit of having someone intervene and save me out, outweighed the risk mm-hmm. it took, perhaps even on our relationship and the risk of her confronting her own kids. So I wanted to paint this scenario for the reader that it was a really helpless situation and there was no way out of it but through Mm -hmm. and you also realize and and you know I'm I'm very uh I lean toward the adverse childhood experiences memoir and the insecure childhood memoirs I mean in terms Mm of what what resonates with me a lot and I feel like you it's it's an important story in that also you are showing how you were kind of out of resources but mm-hmm. you're trying you know you're you you get to see how you're really actually trying even though it's a delicate balance and then when she basically ignores you and says you're you're it's not true I mean mm-hmm. that's just you know where where else are you supposed to go then exactly so In another part of the book, you write, quote, I decided to tell my truth rather than give vague and ambiguous accounts when asked about my family. In candor and in humility, I found power in my story. So how does it feel 
to now have your memoir out in the world? It feels like freedom. So for the longest time, I think I was trying to protect that little girl by not telling her story. And I was very afraid of if I told the story, what it would do to who I was now. If I was candid and let everyone in on what I actually went through, you know, Mm -hmm. what it would do to how, how I carry myself now. And for a long time, I couldn't do that. But now that I, I can, and I, I wrote it out, and I'm happy about it, and I feel relief and forgiveness and healing, it feels, it feels like, like freedom. Mm-hmm. Do you, did you have any um, concerns? Because you write about your, your family. You know, this is a family mm-hmm. memoir and survival memoir. And you, as the oldest, protected and cared for your younger sister and brother, I don't know if you still feel like you have that role. Happy to have you answer that. Like if you still play that role in your family or if they've told you to like lay off. <laughs> and how did you approach your family, you know, even your parents about the fact that your memoir was coming out? I think that I, as the oldest sibling, you always play that role. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that you were born with, a characteristic, I think. Mm-hmm. But obviously as my siblings get older and handle their own situations and become adults and make their own decisions. I've kind of let go of that for the most part. And then I didn't approach my family in any particular way. I did. I basically just told them that I was writing the book mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone was pretty supportive and they, they actually couldn't wait to read it. Oh, wow. And so what's, what's that response been like for you? Um, it's been overall pretty good. I think that it made my sister a little bit emotional, but it, it made our bond so much stronger because what I have found in writing, I mean, most of the book, it's the relationship between my sister and I, because my brother was so young towards mm-hmm. the end of it. You kind of reflect and think, wow, our bond was really strong. You don't even realize our bond was that strong until you reflect on what we actually went through together. There's something about, you know, there's a scene where we talk about we didn't have a lot of toys, so we had this crazy imagination. (laughs) And we imagined ourselves surviving in a jungle with nothing and with no voices. And I Mm -hmm. I don't think that was coincidental. I think that that was our way of coping by, in a way, playing. Yes, I definitely, I thought that was like a goosebump moment because I thought not only are you doing a survival game, which I think kids like to do, you know, it's kind of a psychological workout, but also that you were voiceless, you know, and... Yeah, it was a, it was gripping. So are there are there memoirs that you appreciate or that have helped you or or sort of showed you the way or that you love that you would like to suggest? I do. So actually Stephen King's memoir called On Writing was probably mm-hmm. one of the, the most useful books I read on the craft itself. He gives you just straightforward blunt advice on how to write well and what it takes to write a book. Um, So that helped a lot in the actual craft. And then there's a book by Angie Thomas called The Hate You Give. It's not a memoir, but the way that she wrote 
inspired my style of writing. She actually used a lot of dialogue to tell the story. Um, so my, my style is largely influenced by that book. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Finally, what advice would you give to a writer contemplating memoir or a memoirist who worries about sharing their story? So my advice is that if you can't stop thinking about it, then you should just write it (laughs) because you'll just always wonder or always feel this urge of telling the story and thinking about it and going through it in your head. You should just write it, you know, to give yourself closure. And then to someone that's worried about sharing their story, you know, stop waiting for the opportunity to share your story put it out in the universe and give people the chance to engage in your story don't ever underestimate the power in your day-to-day your past basically the power in your unique story no one will ever be able to tell it the way you do for and for every worry you have about sharing it there's probably so many lives that you can touch with it in in a meaningful way Mm, Thank you for that. So Felicia, where can people find you? Where's the best place to find out more about you, get the book? The book is available on Amazon, as well as Barnes and Noble online. And it can be ordered to any bookstore um, through Ingram. It can be found on Goodreads. And it can also be found directly from my blog, www.mixedfeelingsmama.com. And you can learn or follow me on Instagram, Latin for happiness underscore MD. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. And I'm really, really happy we had this chance to talk. Thank you so much, Roni. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.